the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. If somebody is willing, if somebody is willing to what? What is that? I got lost there for a second. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. We get started now at 10 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Thursday, the first morning of the 12th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. And we are already rocking and rolling. we got a lot to do. Coming up this morning... And about 10.10, we're going to talk to Dr. Everett Piper. He's one of the generals in our army in the culture war, as you know, fighting very, very hard for that which is true, good, and beautiful. Uh, and uh, Dr. Piper and I have a lot to cover, uh, including, and maybe especially, the heretical sermon in Cambridge uh, in England that we talked about a little bit earlier this week, in which the preacher told his congregation that Jesus Christ himself might be herself, might be trans, as at least has a trans body at the very least. To say that that has um, angered and upset some Christians is an understatement. Dr. Piper and I are going to talk about that uh, coming up at 1010 this morning. So uh, we're looking forward to that conversation. And um, I, I, I'm going to start with a with a story this morning. Actually, let's do our pledge first, so I don't have to be interrupted in the stories here that I've got. So let's do the pledge first. Sometimes I get a little bit further into the monologue before we do our pledge of allegiance. So, patriots, let's uh, let's all rise. 
wherever you may be, face that flag, put your hand on your heart. If you're driving, just do the hand part. Don't try to stand. It just does not work. If you are a believer in welfare among U.S. national team athletes, then you have no idea what the flag represents, what capitalism and meritocracy are all about either. You are thus exempted from the request to rise and state your allegiance to our great flag and this great nation. Instead, you may take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback, while the rest of us stand and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, thank you, friends and patriots, uh, and I appreciate that. If you're a new listener, because uh, I did the Dennis Prager show yesterday, and they had a lot of folks really express interest and uh, appreciation for the show, and so I told them when we are and where we are on a daily basis right here. So if you're a new listener from somewhere around the country, um, because uh, you heard me on Prager yesterday, we do a pledge every morning. And it might sound strange to you to think that people listen to a radio and then stand up in their living room or their kitchen or their wherever they might be or driving along with their hand on their heart and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. You might think it's silly. You might think nobody's actually doing it. You might think it's just some sort of a goofy gimmick. Um, I can assure you it is none of those things. And all of the speeches I give and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the gatherings that I attend, I see people and I hear people every day, every time telling me how much they appreciate it and how much it means to them to be able to stand, uh, even if they're not next to fellow patriots, but with fellow patriots all over greater Cleveland where this show originates and maybe beyond. Uh, to do their pledge of allegiance, it means a lot to them, and it means a lot to me too. So, if you're a new listener, don't think it's uh, don't think it's just a gimmick. It's real. People care that much. That's what I love about this audience. Uh, I almost forgot. By the way, uh, David Bernstein is going to be joining us too. <clears throat> That conversation is coming up in the third hour uh, at 11.10. We're going to talk to David. He's the author of Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. And, yes, this is a, this is a topic that needs to be discussed, particularly right now. Um, there, is, there is a massive, massive storm in front of us. Not that we haven't already been trying to manage and survive the storm, but there's a massive storm in front of us because the Democrats are about to have a new leader in Congress now that Nancy Pelosi is not seeking leadership positions any longer as a minority leader. Once we uh, the Republicans take over as the uh, majority, Hakeem Jeffries is going to be the new Democrat leader. Hakeem Jeffries is a wild racist who, who thinks and believes that anybody with lighter skin than his is out to hurt him and out to oppress people who look like him. If you thought racial division was already a problem in this country, wait until you see how the Democrats look and act with Hakeem Jeffries at the helm of the Congressional Democrats. It is going to be a show, and you know what kind of a show that I'm talking about. Now, uh, I want to start with this, even though it's not the most important issue of the day. It is an issue. What did I mean when I say if you believe in welfare um, among national teams... I'm, I'm, of course, speaking of the little kicky ball tournament that they've got going on over there in, uh, in Qatar. Um, I don't watch kicky ball. Kicky ball is, 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 is about as, 
enjoyable to me is watching grass grow, paint dry, and pick your other comparison there because that's just about how exciting it is to watch people run around for 90 minutes and score zero goals or one goal. Um, seriously, I mean, it's just... Um, I said it on the Prager Show yesterday. I believe the numbers are continuing to climb in coma wards all over the country. People are slipping into comas watching the World Cup. And um, until they uh, they flatten the curve, I mean, seriously, I think the CDC should step in and, and uh, halt the World Cup. Lockdown on the World Cup just to stop boredom-induced comas from overwhelming our, uh, our hospital facilities. So I don't watch the little kiki ball tournament, but I was interested in this headline. U.S. women's national team will get half of the money won by the U.S. men's national team at the World Cup. Wait, what? The fruits of the new agreement between the U.S. men's and women's national soccer teams is about to pay off, according to the New York Post. Under the the equal pay agreement signed this year, the teams will split the prize money for the World Cup. That means that both teams will get $6.5 million for the men's team advancing to the round of 16 and will continue to split the prize money down the middle. The teams agreed to in May and formally signed in September to put both teams on the same payment model through 2028. The women's team, which has won the last two World Cups, had long been advocating for equal pay but without success. It took a collectively bargained agreement with a buy-in from both the men and the U.S. Soccer Federation to achieve it. Prior to that, the women's team had sued U.S. soccer for gender discrimination. The lawsuit was settled in 2019 for $24 million, contingent on the new agreement. So I'm trying to understand something here. If, If Team A, and in this case that would be the men's team, makes $100, just for the sake of understanding here, right? If Team A makes $100 based on the revenue they're able to generate for people who want to watch them, and Team B rolls in and makes $20 because there's much less interest in watching them, for whatever the reason, if you want to call it sexism or bigotry, you call it what you want. But people watch the NBA. They don't watch the WNBA. The women have every right to have their league and have their opportunities. I am a staunch supporter of women's sports, which is why I am so staunchly opposed to the idea of biological males going into and destroying women's sports. So I want women to have their sports. But the bottom line is people watch the NBA, hence billions of dollars of revenue are generated. People don't watch the WNBA Hence, they generate no dollars and, in fact, have to be subsidized by the NBA just so that they can continue to exist. It's just a reality in the world of sport. It's not about equality. Nobody is saying that the girls' and women's teams should not exist. In fact, quite the opposite. I absolutely want them to exist, and I hope they thrive. I do. But in truth... Sports has been, historically, a male-dominated industry or a male-dominated area of entertainment, if you will. And that's largely because sports take a lot of athleticism, strength, stamina, power, 
you know, things that typically are found to be an advantage for males. Now, when I say typically, I mean pretty much always. That's just the reality of the situation. Males are different than females. Boys are different than girls. Boys have bigger, stronger bodies with higher strength, higher uh, testosterone levels, obviously, that lead to greater stamina, uh, uh, thicker bone density, thicker muscles, uh, lung capacity, all of the things that make sports, sports, guys are better at. And so most people are drawn to watching sports being played at the highest level possible, not a slower level. It's the same reason why the strongest man in the world is probably three times stronger than the strongest woman in the world. It's the reason why the New York Marathon and the Boston Marathon that are run every year are won by a male, and then there is the female winner that comes in about 15 minutes later. It's not, that's not sexism. It's just, this is just biological and physiological reality. And by the way, that's it. There is just a male winner and a female winner. There is no third category. There is no 97th category for this gender winner or that gender winner because... Ain't but two genders. Two genders. Ain't nothing but men and women. So, the fact is that men draw more people in whatever sport they're playing, even a sport as coma-inducing as kickyball, and... People, more people want to watch that than, than want to watch the women. Thus, they make a lot more money or draw a lot more money in revenue than the women's teams do. And the women have said, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're playing the same game they're playing. We're putting in the same effort that the men's team is putting in. And we're better at it, by the way. We've won the last two World Cups on the women's side. Therefore, we should make the same amount of money the men make. We're doing the same thing. And, of course, they're not doing the same thing. Who's your favorite musician working today? i got to tell you, I'm a classic rock guy. Most of the, my favorite musicians are dead. Uh, or they're or they're from the 80s and they're just uh, you know maybe touring once in a while and doing jukebox hits. They're not making new music. But pick your favorite. I mean, the most popular in the world probably right now is Taylor Swift. Now she's not my favorite. She's not my cup of tea. But whatever. She wins all of the awards and she sells the most records and therefore she makes a ton of money. Right. Now, what about the the garage band down the street that you hear practicing at all hours of the night and it ticks you off? They got the garage door closed, but if they're in there wailing away and they're screaming it out and they're banging the drums and they're doing their occasional gig down at the corner bar, they're singing just as hard as Taylor Swift is. They're trying just as hard as Taylor Swift is. But they draw 45 people at $2 a ticket cover charge at the local bar where they play on Saturday nights. Taylor Swift sells out 20,000-seat arenas at $150 a ticket every weekend. Should the local garage band who plays down at the corner get half of what Taylor Swift makes? No, let me rephrase. What the women wanted was equal pay, the women uh, uh, kickyball players. So should the the local guy singing just like she's singing? Why doesn't he get the same amount of money Taylor Swift gets? And the answer, of course, is nobody wants to watch and listen to him. You only get what you can command. 
in a capitalist society, if what you are selling is in high demand, you can charge more for it and make more money. Well, in the world of kickyball, people don't care about the women's soccer team. They don't care about the women's national team. If they did, they would be buying more tickets. The ratings on TV would be higher. The TV contracts would be massive. And the women would be making all of that money on their own. But instead, since they can't, they sued for $24 million, demanded equal pay, and now somehow navigated this little gem. They get to keep all of their own money and take half of the men's money. So in my my example at the beginning, if Team A makes $100 and Team B only makes $20 because of the revenue they generate, well, Team B gets to keep their 20 and take half of Team A's 100, which is 50, And the team that nobody watches and the team that has no revenue ends up with a grand total of $70 to the team that everybody is watching in the tournament that people actually are interested in for some unknown reason. He only gets 50. The women are going to make out the women's national team on this welfare system. They're going to make out like bandits. They keep all of their money. They don't have to share it with the men, but they do get half of the men's money. Somebody make that make sense to me. In a capitalist society where supply and demand and market forces determine what revenues are, are generated and thus what salaries are paid out, somehow in this weird, bizarre welfare world, the, the U.S. women's national team for sitting home and watching the guys on TV playing in their little kickyball tournament over there in uh, Qatar are going to make exactly the same amount that the guys are who are out there running around. And when the women have their next tournament, the guys get bupkis. Nothing from what they make. Somebody make that make sense to me. I'm look, I, look, I'm a capitalist. I'm a capitalist, and I'm for equal rights and equal opportunity. And if you tell me that women deserve every nickel that a man makes, I will say I agree, provided that they generate all of the revenue that a man makes. They should have equal opportunity. Title IX protects that. Give them every opportunity to make as much money as they can. But if they don't make as much because people aren't as interested in it, simply because of the nature of human interest, they don't get to steal half the money from the guys that people are watching. Make that make sense to me. It's uh, 925. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Take Bob on the go by downloading the WHK Radio app on the Google Play Store. You know, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I tell people that all the time. Uh, if you can't get the uh, station because you're in a building with a lot of metal or if you're just in a, in a poor coverage area, it's so easy to listen to this program and everything on AM 1420, The Answer, by getting the app. I mean, obviously, whkradio.com, and you can hear the stream via your computer. But if you want to make it easy through your smartphone or your tablet or whatever, just download the app. Just go to your app store and search for 1420 The Answer, 1420 The Answer. You'll find it, download it, tap it. It's easy to do. You can also do it on your Alexa. If you've got uh, one of the uh, Alexa uh, devices, uh, just uh, tell it, hey, play uh, uh, The Answer Cleveland, and, uh, and you'll have us. By the way, speaking of the app store, <clears throat> real quick, Elon Musk apparently has come to an understanding with Tim Cook 
the CEO of Apple. I've been talking to you about this the last couple of days, the last few days, ever since Elon Musk said Apple is considering booting the Twitter app from their platform, from their place, uh, from their uh, app store, rather. And if you can't get Twitter on your smartphone, it's going to cut um, the number of users of Twitter. I, I can't even put a percentage on it, but it would be dramatic. It would be extraordinary because the iPhone is the most popular smartphone in the world, and Twitter is one of the most popular apps in the world. If you take it off of there, it's it's going to cost the company billions of dollars. It's um, it would it would just be uh, unthinkable. And it was at that point that Elon Musk said, "If they do that, if Twitter is removed from the Apple App Store and or the Google Play Store, then I'm going to have to build my own phone." And that got a lot of people excited, including me. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. Elon, build it anyway, even though you've come to an agreement now, with uh, or at least an understanding. There's no, there's no written agreement, but even though you've come with uh, come to an understanding now with Tim Cook uh, at Apple that they're not going to boot you and your your uh, uh, your new product from the from the App Store. I still think you can't let them have the monopoly on the smartphone market. It's just Apple and Google. That's it. This is why I talked to Donald Trump last year, and I said, President Trump. Can you please think about maybe, uh, especially you know now that you have, you have been uh, taken out of office? I won't say he was defeated, but he was removed from office. Maybe one of the things you can do is start the Trump phone. We need a third option, so we don't have to support either Google or Apple in any of their you know their um, human rights violations, their 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 fealty to China, the Chinese Communist Party, and so many more things. And President Trump really wasn't interested in it. But Elon Musk said he is. And I hope he continues through to build it anyway. But Twitter's not going anywhere, at least for now. Tim Cook assured Elon Musk in a visit uh, to the um, Apple headquarters and uh, took him around and said, look, this is what we're all about. And uh, and so everybody seems happy for now. So there's a little update. Now, having said that, Elon Musk is still breaking news. Elon Musk has now confirmed that Twitter has interfered with elections. Let me say that again. Twitter interfered with elections, not under Elon Musk's watch, but under the last leadership, under the last CEO, under the last, um, how many thousands of leftist workers did they have there contributing to uh, the interference of, with elections, including and especially stopping the Hunter Biden laptop from being shared on Twitter. And in fact, Twitter killed the one um legacy media outlet, the New York Post, that was willing to report on that story. Everybody else, ah, Russian disinformation. Why'd they say that? Because the FBI told them, ah, it's Russian disinformation. Don't let that stuff get spread three weeks before the election. Because you know what that's going to do, don't you? It's going to make Joe Biden and Hunter Biden look like criminals. And that's going to lead to Orange Man Bad getting four more years. No, we got to kill that. That's just one example, however. Elon Musk was responding to a tweet that said, Twitter has shown itself to be not safe for the past 10 years and has lost users' trust. The past team of trust and safety is a disgrace, so it doesn't have any right to judge what is being done now. They had a chance, but they sold their souls to a corporation. Elon Musk's response to that was, Exactly. The obvious reality, as longtime users know, is that Twitter has failed in trust and safety for a very long time and has interfered in elections. Twitter 2.0 will be far more effective, transparent, and even-handed. And that's what we're counting on. That's why I went back to Twitter after three and a half years 
of that nonsense, I went back to Twitter when Musk took over, hoping things will be improved. And they are. He's doing some amazing things in support of free speech and the First Amendment, something that the United States Senate, including 12 Republican senators, are not doing, going back to yesterday's story and the Disrespect for Marriage Act. But but Musk and his new team at Twitter are literally expanding and growing free speech and transparency. But it's a very, very stunning admission for him to say that, yes, Twitter interfered with elections. When you make that claim, you better come forth with some, some proof. And guess what Twitter has promised? The new Twitter, Twitter 2.0. Elon Musk's Twitter has promised exactly that. Quote, the Twitter files on free speech suppression soon to be published on Twitter itself. The public deserves to know what really happened. And that is very, very true. They do. So here's what I want to know. Now that we're getting an acknowledgement from the leader of one of the two largest social media companies in the world, the other one being Facebook, and even though this is a new leader, he's got access to all of the records and files of the company from, from before he took it over, acknowledging that these corporations, these social media corporations, conspired and colluded to affect the outcome of elections, why are we hearing silence from Republican Party leaders. Anybody? I'm not hearing anything from anybody saying, this deserves massive congressional investigation. We have now at least a claim by the current CEO and owner of one of the two largest platforms in the world that the company itself interfered with American elections, literally may have changed the course of American history by impacting the elections. And they're, and, uh, and they're doing nothing about it. I want to hear promises of, as soon as the new Congress is sworn in of oversight and investigation and subpoenas and find out exactly what kind of impact they had. And steps need to be taken to hold those people accountable. How are we going to make sure that big companies, remember, you know, Twitter is only owned by, or Elon Musk only owns Twitter. So, to my knowledge, he's the only moderate believer in free speech and believer in uh, the free flow of information and opponent of censorship. He's the only one who owns a big platform. Mark Zuckerberg continues to own Facebook, and they continue to be straight-up communist in their, in their censorship of information and their pushing and promotion of propaganda, which is very easily recognizable, the difference. So you've, and then there's Google, which controls so much more of the social media platforms because of the Google Play Store. They're the ones who control content and or approval of those platforms being on their servers and thus available in their store. Elon Musk only owns one of these, and that's Twitter. What kind of information would we get if we saw the files of the others? And now, I don't know exactly how the rules of evidence go, but if Elon Musk opens the books, as he promises to do, and if congressional investigators find out that what he said is true, that the interference in the elections changed or altered the outcome of some of the elections, perhaps including the 2020 presidential election, I feel like that might be enough to to get a subpoena 
to bring the other individuals who are in charge of the other companies and maybe even to seize records and see if it was not across all platforms. How do you ensure that this will never be done by those other platforms? Again, Elon Musk only owns one of them. The other ones, how do you know they're not going to do the same thing in the 2024 elections? The only way you ensure it is if they see the clink, clink of the, um, of the uh, shackles around the hands and feet of the Twitter executives who did it and, it, and and are now being exposed by the new CEO. If accountability doesn't happen, the crime will be repeated, right? Is that a, is that a wild thing to say? Is that a, is that a bridge too far? If they don't have accountability for their actions, they'll do it again. There has to be accountability. So I'm very, very excited that Elon Musk is giving us an opportunity, just an opportunity, to see exactly how corrupt the Twitter platform was under its previous leadership. And I want to see exactly what he means when he says they interfered with elections. And the new Twitter will never do any such thing. 216 Either one of those numbers will get you here, and I look forward to uh, hearing from you. Um, but speaking of elections, real quick before our time out, I want to play this for you, because I find this very, very interesting. The Senate Majority Leader, or excuse me, Senate Minority Leader, is Mitch McConnell, much to the dismay of conservatives and especially Trump supporters. Mitch McConnell, who... I think a lot of people feel like played favorites in terms of how he and his super PAC funded Senate candidates, favorites in terms of supporting Rhino candidates and withholding support from perceived MAGA Trump-endorsed candidates. Mitch McConnell had something very, very interesting to say yesterday. When asked about the ill-fated, not ill-fated, wrong word, but the very, very poor judgment shown by President Trump when he met with uh, anti-Semitic spewing Kanye West and anti-Semitic Holocaust-denying Nick Fuentes uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Mitch McConnell asked about this yesterday, um, said something pretty astounding. Not in his condemnation of Trump for having the meeting. That should be condemned. I have condemned it. I support President Trump in a number of ways. That's not one of them. That was a terrible, terrible mistake and error in judgment. It's going to be his undoing because he does stupid stuff like that. Self-inflicted gunshot wounds are always the most lethal. And that's what that was. But for me to say that and for the Republican Party Senate minority leader to say this is entirely different. Let me just say that there is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. And there it is. Mitch McConnell just said that Donald Trump can't be elected as president of the United States. Didn't say can't, but you can read that, right? You can read that as you hear his lines. Quote, anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view is highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. I can read between those lines. 
he is saying, will not be elected, will not be supported by the Republican Party to be president of the United States. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. So that's that's quite um, that's quite a statement coming from the Senate uh, Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, and if you're a Trump supporter, I know how you feel about that. That has got to be just driving you crazy. I think it's a little bit inappropriate to make such a statement. I condemned and criticized President Trump, and I predicted, I predicted this is probably something that's going to come back to haunt him. It's going to be his undoing. This kind of thing, especially if it's repeated. But I'm not the Minority Leader for the for the Republican Party in the United States Senate. I'm not in charge of and supposed to be uh, supporting electing Republicans, electing conservatives to do the will of the people. He is. And for him to make that statement at this particular point in time, rather than just saying, I think it was an error in judgment, and I hope that that kind of thing doesn't happen again, for him to say, that guy's not going to be elected. Is, um, is, is, I think, a little bit of a bridge too far at this particular stage in the game. I welcome your thoughts. 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. Short time out. Always write radio right back after this. so sad i saw that yesterday too i'm a huge fleetwood mac fan obviously stevie nicks what i loved about them is they didn't have a lead singer they have multiple lead singers you know there's always like the front man for most bands most great bands but some of the songs stevie nicks some of the songs it was it was christine mcvee uh, some of the songs it was you know uh, uh, you know the the guys I mean they 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 kind of shared top billing and Christine McVie was amazing she had such a great voice and it was weird yesterday after I heard about Christine McVie passing away at the age of 79 I just got in my truck and I and I put my uh, playlist on it's not a playlist it, whatever it's my my um, the songs that are downloaded onto my phone that I've chosen. So this wasn't coming from like a service where they could, you know, prioritize Fleetwood Mac because somebody passed away like this or whatever. But it was just my own personal playlist, and I did the shuffle. I push shuffle, and whatever comes up comes up. First song that came up was Over My Head, Christine McVie and Fleetwood Mac. So very, very sad to see uh, such a great performer uh, pass away at 79. Let's go to Marty, who's calling us from Kent on AM 1420, The Answer. Marty, good morning. Go ahead, sir. Uh, that's the first I heard about Christine McVie. Oh, yeah, sad. <laughs> Man. Okay, uh, with regards to Trump meeting with reprobates, um, could the possibility <laughs> exist? Could the possibility exist that he might be gathering evidence as to their involvement in any kind of 2020 rioting or anything else before no. that? No. 
I think we're reaching you don't think farther so? than we're not you've ever privy to started. the conversation. No, there. no, we're not. We're not. But I mean, come on. I mean, in all seriousness, Donald Trump has reached a reach that you can, you know, only even imagine. If you wanted to dig into any plans or anything to find out, because you know, yeah, this Nick Fuentes character was one of the speakers at one of the stages there before uh, everything went down on January sixth. He could find that out without inviting him to Mar-a-Lago and having the press know about it and so forth. It would be if you wanted to do that, he would do it covertly. He would not do it so overtly. This is, um, see, this is the thing we have to recognize, Marty, in my opinion. And a lot of us are guilty of this. Our favorite leaders, and, and particularly those who are targets for unfair treatment, and Donald Trump is at the very top of that list. We like to think yeah. that, we like to think that, um, there's, there's always an explanation. There's an explanation. There's 5D chess going on here that none of us can understand, and we try to excuse things that are just mistakes. And the bottom line here is President Trump made a mistake by meeting with some bad people, with some bad histories, who say some really bad things that just gave more ammunition to uh, an army of media and political opponents who want to shoot him and take him down, metaphorically speaking. Well, let me, let me throw one more thing out there, because yeah. he is famous for, look at what the left hand is doing, pay no attention to what the right hand is doing. Well, so, every, everybody's paying attention. I, yeah, everybody's yeah. paying attention right now to the hand that uh, <laughs> that shook Kanye West yeah. and Nick Fuentes and, and had him over for dinner at Mar-a-Lago. And that's the hand that everybody's looking at right now. And here's the thing. Yeah. What, all he needed to do, uh, and, and thanks for the call, Marty. I appreciate it. All he yep. needed to do, in my opinion, was say, you know what? I didn't know all about this guy's history. Uh, yeah, we vetted him, but I didn't know all of the specifics. Didn't know he was a Holocaust denier. Uh, never would have had him in if I had. This is a this is a mistake. I condemn him and everything that he stands for totally. Um, this is not this is not something that I that I want to be a part of. Uh, if he does that, everybody shuts up because you have to. But instead, he said, "You know, I just I was here. To, what was his truth social statement?" His truth social statement was uh, in response to this. First of all, it was very, very late. And second of all, I just thought it was very, very unhelpful, um, if I can say it that way. His truth social statement was essentially something like, I was trying to help Kanye West, who's a black man. He made a point of saying, who's a black man, by the way, who had been good to me in the past. So I was trying to help him, and he brought around some people I didn't even know. And, 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 and now the media is fixated on that. What's wrong with you people? He blamed the critics for his lack of vetting or lack of acknowledgement of who was in his home at his dinner table. And I think that's ugly. And I think what he could have done is said, I don't like that guy. I didn't realize and recognize who and what he was. That dude's never coming around me ever again. If he just just completely and totally condemns the guy, I think the critics have to shut up now. But he didn't, and so they won't. And I think that's a problem. That's not 5D chess. That's not right hand, left hand. That's just a mistake. Dr. Everett Piper joins me next on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420. The answer. Right into hour number two, eight minutes after 10 o'clock on this Thursday, the very first morning of the 12th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. I got to tell you, I'm uh, <laughs> not going to be sorry to see this year go. <laughs> 
We had, a lot, we had a lot of really bad things happening this year. We'll do that toward the end of the month. We'll uh, we'll have our year in review kind of thing here. But boy, when you think about what was done to this country, and you think about where we are economically, uh, financially, militarily, from uh, from a sovereignty standpoint, from a crime standpoint, uh, oh my goodness, it's been a very, very, very rough year. I said some good things happen too, by the way. Roe versus Wade is no more. All right, let's uh, let's dive into our regular Thursday conversation with our good friend Dr. Everett Piper, who is now a county commissioner in his native Oklahoma, perhaps better known uh, for his works uh, in uh, the literary field. He's a best-selling author. He's a former university president, and he's now currently a weekly columnist for the Washington Times. Dr. Piper, good morning. Good to have you back. Uh, good to be back. I, I trust you had a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was it was it was good to be with family. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Some challenges, but it was really good to be with family. Thank you for that. I appreciate okay. that. Okay, right. Dr. Piper, um, I want to get into there, there's a couple of things in the Washington Times we're going to talk about, not the least of which is your column from this past Sunday, uh, and perhaps the one from last Sunday is this pa- uh, the Sunday before that as well. But I want to ask you about a story that I brought up, and I kind of just I I, I didn't take calls on it because it was a little too disturbing, quite frankly. But I shared it, and I want to get your reaction to it too. As I like to call you one of the generals in our army in the culture war, this is a this is a massive cannonball shot at uh, at us in the culture war. Uh, the trans movement has fixated on a new target now, and it's about as bad as it gets. Um, the trans movement has reached Cambridge Trinity College in Cambridge in England. They had a sermon at the church there given by an individual who declared Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, had a trans body. Describing the trans body in and of itself as looking part male and part female, and then more specifically and more uh, heretically and more disgustingly, the spear wound in his side, which of course he received while hanging on the cross, um, took the form in art depictions of a vagina. And blood flowing from that spear wound in his side flowed down to his uh, genital area. I don't want to say any more because it's very hard to say any more. And uh, the people who were in the in the uh, the parishioners in the pulpit, or excuse me, in the uh, congregation that day, they didn't want to hear it either. Many of them screamed heresy, and many of them left the church in tears. The dean at Cambridge actually defended the sermon and said there was nothing wrong with analyzing Christ our Lord in such a way. I'll, I'll get out of the way now, Dr. Piper. What do, you, what do you have to say in response to that? Well, my first reaction is kind of like yours. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Well, and I think the second thing I just said is probably the more important. I don't want to think about these things. I don't want my spirit, my soul my mind contaminated by some of this garbage that the the woke left, whether it be in the church or out of the church, is pushing on us today. Um, this isn't the first shot. Uh, there was an article, and I'm not going to belabor it because um, it's so disturbing, so I'll just skip across the surface of an article I read some months ago that took the Eucharist and sexualized it. Okay, enough said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, these people will stop at nothing. The, the diabolical human mind, to quote M. Scott Peck, the reprobate mind, to quote the Apostle Paul. We know that when we exchange the truth of God for life, we start worshiping ourselves rather than God, Romans 1, that we're given over to this inability to think our way out of a paper bag. I've said this a thousand times on your show to a, 
in response to a variety of stories. And here we are. This is so illogical, not to mention theological heresy. Uh, The painting that we're referring to was painted in the Renaissance era. era, Excuse me, I'll say that again. Renaissance era. Why in the world would we... (laughs) Would anybody suggest that that's a, that's a scientific photograph, if you will, of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion? I mean, of course it's not. So, it, so to, to somehow say that this painting, which I would consider the interpreter of the painting today, is, is bastardizing the, the intent of the artist, but even if the artist did intend that, that has nothing to do with the reality, the historical veracity of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the second person of the triune God. I mean, it's, it's uh, 1,300, 1,400 years removed from the event itself. It's not a photograph. So why in the world would the Church be discussing anything about the body of Jesus Christ, this, this painting an accurate depiction of it? And then, not, not to mention that you're insulting the artist himself by laying over the top, on top of his painting that was 500, 600 years ago, whenever it was, and suggesting that somehow he was buying into your trans lunacy that you brought to the table five seconds ago. Um, I, I could go on and on, Bob, but I, I do want to affirm your reluctance to get involved in this and, and explain mine, and even uh, applaud any of your listeners who say, you know, this is just a bridge too far. Um, is, it the, is it Hebrews? I think it's in Hebrews uh, the, the, that uh, we're told that it's a, a shame to even think about what the evil do in secret. I mean, there are times when we should just say, stop, you guys, meaning the evil, the secular, the woke, the, the people that want to disparage Christianity. We're not even going to think about what you are doing in secret, because we want our minds, our hearts, and souls to have some degree of purity left, and we don't want to feel like we've got to go give our soul a shower after discussing this kind of nonsense. You know, the the thing that makes it so shocking, and the reason I wanted to get your response to it, is because if I had read that in a left-wing, uh, atheist-driven you know, publication, it would be one thing. I would still be just shocked and horrified and offended greatly uh, at the depiction of, of our Lord in such a way. But the fact that this was done in a homily, the fact that this was done in a uh, house of worship and defended by the dean who invited that particular uh, preacher... Um, to, in, in, in a room full of Christians to say that Christ was this way and using, as you say, you know, just artistic depictions to suggest such things. That's what makes it even worse. This didn't appear in some weird alt left website. This was in a church. And that, that's what's well, so frightening. And there's a part of this that doesn't surprise me, Bob, because coming out of the ivory tower and the academy like I have in my, in my career, even within Christian colleges and universities for decades, there's, this been, there's been this discussion by the feminists, Christian feminists, that, well, you're not suggesting that God has an actual sexual body, are you? Do you think God the Father has genitalia? I mean, I, this conversation has been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they've taken that conversation of, well, are you really suggesting that God is, is a sexual being? And then they take that, discussion, that question, and they lay it over the top of the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, who was incarnate in the flesh and did have a body, and we are told it was a male body, and then they start drawing these questions into that. Well, maybe God, because he's not a sexual being, actually incarnated himself as transgender. Do you see where this is going? I mean, 
bad ideas have bad consequences, and the consequences of sexualizing God um, and trying to lay over the top of the theological conversation of who God is, our sexual curiosities and fantasies and our, our brokenness as human beings, uh, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to be transformed to Christ. We're not to be transgendered. We're to be born again. We're not to, to celebrate the fact that we're born that way. And this message from this homily at Trinity College in Cambridge is the exact opposite. They're talking about doing uh, the exact opposite of the transforming work of Jesus Christ. They're actually dumbing down Jesus Christ to our libido, and that is not the gospel. Yeah, I think um, my most simplified way of answering these people, if I ever had to do so in a in a, in a face-to-face um, a discussion, would be to bless myself in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I think that's yeah. all we need to know. Dr. Piper, uh, last two columns that you wrote for the Washington Times, and we talked about this a little bit last time, uh, about the uh, Republican primary for president. Right now, it is a primary of one. Only one person has decided to declare his candidacy this early. It is President Trump. You are not in support of that primary run. Uh, you did write that uh, two weeks ago that Republicans should welcome a robust and competitive presidential primary, uh, meaning we need to really look very closely at people like Ron DeSantis and others. Then you wrote about some of the responses that you got this past week. Uh, um, people are being very, very critical. Trump supporters are very, very loyal supporters. And by the way, I respect and admire loyalty. I've got no problem with that whatsoever. But they don't want to hear anything that might come out as being negative about uh, President Trump and his run for another uh, another term in, in office. And they don't want to hear your you know, DeSantis commentary. They don't want to hear any of the others that might be getting in his way. You want to give us a little bit more of what you mean when you say we have to discuss this and not demean others. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, it, it's an interesting twist on this article that you're referring to. It wasn't a Trumper that was criticizing me. It was a never-Trumper that said, well, I'm glad you finally came around. You never should have been in bed with the devil in the first place. That was his commentary. So, uh, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't on the Trump discussion here. You know, I voted for Trump twice. I've defended that vote on your show and otherwise, other programs, multiple times. I don't apologize for uh, defending Donald Trump and supporting Donald Trump and voting for Donald Trump when he was giving me more freedom rather than less. And I, I'm grateful for that. But as I've said, thank him when he's right and criticize him when he's wrong. That's what conservatives should do. Conservatives should not be coronating a king. Conservatives should be voting on principles, not personalities. I firmly, firmly believe that. And I don't begrudge uh, Donald Trump uh, running for office again. I, will, I think Ron DeSantis is a better candidate, period. End of story. And I think a good, robust discussion, debate, a good primary, uh, give and take, a good wrestling match, if you will, is healthy. It's healthy for the party. So I don't think we should walk away from it. I think we should invite it, and I think we should engage with one another in a civil fashion where we don't call each other names. I've been called a uniparty moron <laughs> by, by those that don't like the fact that I'm leaning toward Ron DeSantis. And then I've been called a person in bed with the devil because I supported Donald Trump in the past and would probably vote for him again if he's the lesser of two evils. I'm not going to vote for a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden, or I'm, and I'm not going to aid and abet anybody who does. But right now, we've got many viable options. We have a very strong Republican bench, and I think we should celebrate it, and we should defend our candidates with civility 
on the basis of constitutional integrity and principles, how can we get more freedom out of this election rather than less? And if I believe Ron DeSantis is going to do that, or Mike Pompeo, for example, will give me more freedom rather than less, um, better chance of winning than Donald Trump, which right now I would argue the polls, and I know people are going to say, oh, the polls don't matter. Well, if you're going to say that on when uh, DeSantis is doing better than Trump, then remember it when Trump's doing better than DeSantis. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it, to eat it, too, when it comes to the polls. So I responded to one of my guys that was criticizing me because, well, you got in bed with the devil. I'm glad you're finally seeing the light. I said, no, no, no. I didn't get in bed with the devil. I didn't kiss the king's ring. I didn't want to coronate, uh, you know, uh, an emperor. No, I thanked him when he was right. I criticized him when he was wrong. This tiger, Everett Piper, has not changed his stripes. I still believe in principles rather than personalities. So bring it on. Bring on the debate. I think that's where conservatives should be right now. I completely agree. And, you know, I've said it before, it's our blessing and our curse that we are not group think, uh, think individuals. We are people with uh, independent ideas. We have a lot of great candidates on that deep bench who have the same goals but different ideas on how to get there. And we should embrace all of them and listen to the discussion. And as you say, have a discussion. Do not demean and do not condemn others who aren't on the same page as you because we do share the same goals. 1022, we'll take a time out here to Dr. Piper, then we're going to come back and talk about marriage and what happens when marriage is demeaned. Um, they did it. Twelve Republicans signed uh, uh, signed on and joined with all of the Democrats in the Senate to pass the quote-unquote Respect for Marriage Act. It is devastating on a number of fronts, and we'll get your reaction to that coming up on Always Right Radio. Hold on, but don't hold me back. Hold on, but don't hold me back. Hold on, but don't hold me back. Okay, 1025. Now we get to continue for just five more minutes with Dr. Everett Piper, weekly columnist at the Washington Times. Dr. Piper, the Disrespect for Marriage Act, and I'm sorry, I just, I I hate that they continue to do this. They call the Inflation Reduction Act uh, a reduction act when it literally will do nothing to reduce inflation. And in fact, according to economists, it will increase inflation over 10 years, a slight amount. They call this a Respect for Marriage Act when it does nothing to respect marriage, which has been, including by the federal government, acknowledged to be a union between one man and one woman. The Defense of Marriage Act passed in 1996, back when Democrats were sane uh, and agreed with Republicans on what the building block of a nuclear family was, a man and a woman married and raising their kids in the same household. That's all gone now. The Disrespect for Marriage Act now not only codifies same-sex unions, which I didn't think were going to change anyway after the Supreme Court decision in 2015, but Dr. Piper does more than that. It forces people, everyday Americans, to acknowledge, support, celebrate, and promote these unions, even if it is against their faith or their conscience. Um, We all know what happened to Jack Phillips. We are now all Jack Phillips. If we do not publicly support, we can be sued civilly. We can be prosecuted criminally by the federal government once Joe Biden puts his name on that dotted line. And you say what? Well, Megan Basham has a great article in Federalist. Uh, She writes for the Wall Street Journal and other periodicals. She's very insightful, and she talks about who suffers first and who suffers most from this terrible bill, this terrible law. Um, And who is it? Children. Children are the ones who are going to suffer. So, you know, like Pete Buttigieg, during the midst of this discussion over the respect for marriage act and i agree with you completely it's just upside down definition it's the disrespect of marriage it's the dumbing down the degradation of the family the nuclear family that's what this does 
Pete Buttigieg comes out and says, well, how does it hurt you if a gay couple down the street wants to get married? It doesn't hurt you. Well, it does. It does hurt everyone, most specifically children. We know for a fact, you don't have to be a conservative Christian listening right now to check the box and agree with what I'm going to say and what Megan Basham reminds us of. Children born outside of the nuclear family suffer social dysfunction. There's greater crime. There's greater illiteracy. The circle of dysfunction is perpetuated with fatherless children fathering more fatherless children. There's spousal abuse and domestic violence. There is economic loss, greater unemployment. There's greater incarceration rate because of fatherless homes and the breakdown of the nuclear family. So when we're creating a new social structure, which in some cases won't have a male father figure, two lesbians married and getting a a child in, um, a, in a surrogate fashion, however they choose to do it, they have a child they raise in this in this um, broken family structure. You think the child isn't going to suffer? We know the child will suffer, and Megan Basham reminds us of that. Likewise, if you've got two men that are married, quote-unquote, and they're raising a child like Buttigieg and his partner, do you think that child is going to be raised in a functional fashion where he has a nurturing mother and the balance of what God designed for the family. No. Children will, will suffer. And you know that I take it a step further than Basham does. I point out the fact that not only will there be temporal consequences for this broken family structure, but there will be eternal consequences. And all your believers listening to me right now on your show, and I know there are dozens, thousands of believers that listen to you, um, how likely it is that, that these young boys and girls raised in these broken families are going to be raised to believe in the gospel, to be born again, to recognize that there is a need for saving faith, that they are broken, to be raised believing in the Bible, believing in hell. I mean, I know that's uh, a controversial thing to go after these days, Bob, but do we want our children to be raised that if they don't confess their sins, that there is a real hell and there are real consequences for living in a broken way before God. How likely is it that our children are going to be exposed to the gospel message in these broken homes? Well, they're not, obviously. And, you know, the, the, the haters that tell you or ask you, what, you know, what, how does it hurt you if there's, a, if there's a gay marriage down the street, your answer is exactly correct. And, and you know, when you talk about the children, and, and once again, they're going to say, well, they're not your children, so why do you care if they go to hell? Is there anything more anti-Christian? Is there anything more anti-God than I don't care about children that aren't mine, I don't care about people that aren't my family, and what happens to their eternal souls? Oh, spot on. And I think we win that debate by just basically just looking that person in the eye who says that and says and saying to them, are you serious? Are you suggesting that as a society, as a community, language you love to use, as a community, you don't think we should care about each other? and other kids' children. I thought Hillary said it took a village. I mean, we can turn that one on them very quickly. That's exactly right. Dr. Everett Piper, follow him on Twitter, at Dr. Everett Piper. Uh, I'm sure you shared that uh, that Federalist article in addition to your Washington Times articles. They're all great reads. I've seen them myself. Take a look at them. Follow him at Dr. Everett Piper on Twitter, now that we actually have free speech again on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Piper, thank you for the analysis. We will talk to you again next Thursday. All right, bless you. 
10.30, time for news, then time for your phone calls, 216-901-0945, on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Miss something you want to hear? Check out the Always Right Radio podcast anytime at whkradio.com. 1039 now, Always Right Radio, continuing on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks again to Dr. Everett Piper. Always enjoy talking to Dr. Piper with his perspective, and his perspective on the kids is is spot on. Actually, he was highlighting the Federalist and their uh, point on the Respect for Marriage Act. Most of what I've talked about since um, you know we knew this was coming down, this vote, uh, has been on religious liberty, and you just heard commentary on that, and uh, on, on freedom of speech. Uh, but there is another factor, and he's 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 exactly right. Kids are impacted, and if you don't care about kids because they're not your kids, well, uh, I I question your commitment to your faith. I question your commitment to uh, to Christianity. We're supposed to uh, love our children and care for our children, whether they be our children or not. And that doesn't mean you take them over and substitute your judgment for parents, but you do give them the best opportunity. Uh, that you can for a successful life and for, uh, you know, eternal salvation. And I say that not as a preacher because I'm not a preacher and I'm not a biblical scholar and I'm not qualified to be those things, but just just based on common sense and um, and Christian values, I think we would all agree that that's the case. It's why we get so concerned about the drag time story hours and uh, the holiday drag thing that's going on in Columbus Day after tomorrow. Um, it's why it bothers so many of us. Because they're grooming and corrupting kids into lifestyles that are deviant at best, dangerous at worst. At worst, um, that it, you know, we're literally talking about the future. Look, let's put it this way: the founders of this great nation could very easily have said, "I'm sitting pretty. I'm feeling pretty good." You know, uh, we 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 beat the British. We don't have to pay all of those taxes anymore. Uh, we've got our own place here. Let's set it up so that I'm comfortable. You're comfortable. You good? I'm good. Everybody who's uh, you know part of the uh, part of the revolution did their part. We're all good. Whatever happens after we're gone isn't our business. Whatever happens to future children, generations of new Americans to come, not our business. We did our part. Let them figure it out. If they had done that, what we what do we have now? What do we have here? It's, it's unknowable, because everything we know is based on the fact that they didn't do that. They set to the task of creating documents and guiding principles by which the country would grow and evolve and develop through the generations to come, so that, again, as Benjamin Franklin said, we would have this republic if we can keep it. They thought of future generations, and it's why we're here. Do you want to be a part of the decay and the destruction of this country, letting it cave in to dangerous behaviors and lifestyle choices that our kids are being groomed into to the point where the model that was set that gave us this glorious civilization, this society, this culture of ours, is 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 gone forever? Is that what you want to do? Do you want to be responsible for that? In future generations, do you want them to look back to the early part of the 21st century and what we allowed to happen and how it led to the decay and the destruction of this uh, of this great republic? 
I'm not saying we'll ever be known in the same way that George Washington and Jefferson and Franklin and Adams and all of those who were responsible for our um, for our liberty. I'm not saying we'll ever be remembered in that vein, but I don't want to be remembered as the anti-founders. I don't want to be remembered as the generation that allowed all of that glory and all of that goodness to to die. I don't want to do that. I won't do that. I uh, won't be around forever, but I want my kids and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and beyond to know that we did everything we could to protect and preserve this republic. Okay, Dan is in the Middleburg Heights. Dan, thanks for your patience. You're on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning. Go ahead, sir. Good morning, Bob. I listened to you on Prager yesterday, mm-hmm. and I became really interested in the Constitution about 30 years ago, and I learned that the founders that you're just speaking about, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm relating this to the, the, religious, the, uh, uh, the religious amendment, the First Amendment. Right. You were talking to a guy from Redding, California, and he brought out about the establishment Yes. And, well, okay. because well, I mistakenly called it the establishment of religion, and it's an right, establishment of religion. Right, because you're an English teacher more than I am, but when you he, he brought out to you that it was an establishment of religion, mm-hmm. so that establishment becomes a noun, which is a church. Okay? Oh, okay, go on. Establishment of religion. What people don't realize, you've got to pay attention to what these guys were writing back in 1789, because every state at that time, as I understand it, had uh, a church of Virginia, church of South Carolina. Church. You had to pay, men had to pay taxes. You couldn't hold your job unless you paid taxes to that state um, church. Okay, and you couldn't advance in the society unless you paid those taxes. That's what teed off those guys to write that amendment, part of that. And that's really important. So when you flip over to this, what they just passed the other day on the marriage, they also said, they shall pass no law prohibiting the free exercise. There's no wiggle room in that. This should go right to the Supreme Court and be shot down. That's exactly the point I was trying to make, the latter part. And your, your point about the states uh, is, is also well taken. Of course, we know that Congress doesn't pass laws that specifically speak to the states. They can only I pass mean, federal laws. The what, states, if you had, what if you had the uh, I'm just being facetious, but what if you had, in our day here in Ohio, if you had the Mike DeWine Church of Ohio, you'd be <laughs> on his doorstep in the next 15 minutes if you had to pay taxes to that You're as right. a Catholic. But to the point about the disrespect point, you know? for yeah, the the point about the disrespect for marriage act um, uh, violating the establishment clause, it is the second half of that, as you point out. It is Congress shall make no law respecting or excuse me prohibiting the prohibiting. free exercise thereof, uh, meaning right. religion. There's and no that, wiggle room there, and that's right. They, they there isn't, and they literally are passing a law now. If they just did what they did. With Obergefell and left it alone, which is just a Supreme Court decision, not a law passed by Congress, but a Supreme Court decision saying that these uh, same-sex marriages must be recognized, that's very, very different. Uh, They could have left that alone, and we don't have a problem right now, because, again, people have the right to, under their own religious liberty, refuse to participate, which is what we found out when the Supreme Court also uh, decided in favor of Jack Phillips. But what this does is exactly and expressly uh, violates the First Amendment, because it says Congress shall make no law. This is a law passed by the House, passed by the Senate. Actually, it's got to go back to the House now because there's slight language differences. And then signed by Biden. That will be a law that literally prohibits the free exercise of religion right. if it makes people if it makes people participate. 
participate in or support or 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 whatever you want to call promote uh, same-sex marriage against their faith. Jefferson always said that these people are bound by the chains of the Constitution, and that's why the uh, uh, all these guys, uh, the, these twelve Republicans hate the Constitution because they don't want to be bound by it. You're right. You're right, and that's why so many of us I talked to, and thank you for the call. Great stuff, Dan. Um, that's I talked to another um, caller on the Prager Show yesterday where I, you know, I, I kind of summarized what he was saying about the Republicans and the Democrats and where are we supposed to go, and I, I kind of described it as saying, you feel homeless, don't you? Because I do, too. I do. When I see the Republican Party committing to act like soft Democrats, I think to myself, where do I go? You know, I get on these airways every day, and I have for many, many years, telling you to support the Republican Party, telling you that the way that we get around and away from these radical, extremist, socialist, sometimes communist positions by the Democrats, the Green New Deals, and I mean everything that they push, all of the, you know, all of the cultural evils and more, is we support their opponents. But when their opponents start to take positions that more resemble the Democrats than the opposition to the Democrats, where do we go? We find ourselves homeless. Is it time for a new party? I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting we become radical. But but I am recognizing and I'm cognizant of the fact that too many Republicans, particularly in positions of leadership, I was just having a conversation on text during a break with a friend uh, who heard me talking about Mitch McConnell who basically said Donald Trump can't be president again, basically said, because he had that dinner at Mar-a-Lago with uh, you know, white nationalist, uh, Holocaust-denying, anti-Semitic guy like, like Nick Fuentes. Uh, I have condemned Trump for that dinner, by the way. I think it was a stupid, stupid, stupid move. But Mitch McConnell says he can't be president now. He said, uh, and again, I'm saying he virtually said as much. It wasn't the exact quote. The quote was in the neighborhood of, of uh, uh, I'm confident that the people will not elect that kind of a person president again, which is his way of saying uh, it's his, the opposite of an endorsement. I'm endorsing anybody but Trump is what Mitch McConnell was saying here. So if, if this is what our leadership is going to look like, if this is what the rhino establishment leadership is going to look like, I'm going to feel homeless. And that's not to say that it's because it's Donald Trump. I don't even support Trump in this primary at this moment in time, in November of 2022. That can change in 2023, but at this moment in time, there are other people that I would like to see run and would probably have my support early on. And yes, I'm talking about Ron DeSantis. But I will support Donald Trump if he is the nominee, no questions asked. And the idea that Mitch McConnell is sabotaging that possibility now, saying Trump can't do it, Trump can't be allowed to do it, or however you want to word that, the people won't allow it, that's just impossible for me to wrap my brain around. For Mitch McConnell to make a statement like that is just irresponsible uh, and unfair. Let me see if I can play it again in case you missed it. This is Mitch McConnell yesterday. Everyone, First, let me just say that there is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. Uh, there's, the, there's the line with, with accuracy. I just wanted to make sure that you had it so I wasn't misquoting it. Highly unlikely to ever be elected 
president of the United States. That is essentially a non-endorsement. It's an unendorsement. It's a, I'm not endorsing anybody yet, but I can tell you who I won't be endorsing. I won't be endorsing the guy who sat down with the anti-Semites and white supremacists and invite him to, to his home in Mar-a-Lago. And that's, if that's going to be the, the position of leadership, and I'm not saying that Trump shouldn't be condemned for his decision-making there. He should be and is. And I was one of the lead condemners, if you will. I think it was a terrible decision. And I think his explanation was terrible after that. But to say that that precludes him from the possibility of being our nominee, to say that in November or now December 1st of 2022, that's highly irresponsible. And if that's the position of our Republican leadership, I feel homeless. Where do I go? I can't go with the Democrats. I can't trust the Republicans. Where's my home? Like I said, I don't want to get radical and say third party, but we have a lot of work to do to clean up this party. People who need to be jettisoned are the people like Mitch McConnell. People that need to be sent packing are the rhinos who are just being Democrat light anyway. That is how we rebuild the conservative part of this country. The conservative leadership in this, in this, in this party is we don't dump conservatives. We dump those who hate the conservatives. Mitch McConnell is one of those who's got to go. And by the way, the fact that he hasn't been dumped and, in fact, has been selected again by the majority of the Senate to be the Senate minority leader lets you know how the Senate minority itself, the Republicans, overall, bigger picture, knowing how McConnell feels about Trump, they supported him, which means they are saying they won't support Trump in a primary either by giving this guy another term as minority leader in the next Congress. That's a very telling uh, development as well. 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. Jim is in uh, West Park. Jim, go ahead. I got fire in the belly this morning. All right, let's hear it. Bring it. He just said his best judgment. Okay, what about the Ronald Reagan golden rule? What about when Obama was president, you had Louis Farrakhan, Reverend White, Jesse Jackson, and Sharpton, who had keys to the White House. Nothing was said. And... Well, that's that. Well, hold on, hold on. That's not true. Nothing was said by the media. Lots were said by me and you and conservative people. We we reacted the same way most of us are reacting right now to the idea that he he's sitting down with anti semites like uh like like Nick Fuentes. The fact that Obama met with and sat with and counseled with Louis Farrakhan. And Reverend Wright, like you're talking about, we had plenty to say about it. And that's what makes us, in my mind, that's what gives us the moral high ground here, Jim. We're willing to call out uh, our side and their side if they do anything even remotely similar uh, in, in, in such uh, uh, indefensible ways. And uh, that's what makes us different. They'll never criticize Obama, St. Barack. Or Joe Biden and all of his idiocy, but they'll do everything they can to point out every one of Trump's foibles. That's what makes us different than them. Okay, well, Trump did respond to his unknown guests. Okay, he didn't know they were going to be there. Yeah, I don't, I don't I, buy I that for one to... second, and you shouldn't either. That's, he, it was yeah. a terrible response. It was a terrible okay. response. And then um, I wanted to know what the book that Patrick <clears throat> Woods has out uh, that you had. The on... Evil Twins. I'll give you the name of it right now. Yes, I had him on yesterday. It? It's called The Evil Twins of Technocracy and Transhumanism. Okay. You can get it on okay. paperback or on Kindle. It's available right now. Look it up on okay. Amazon. Okay, it just came out. Yep. And then um, we were talking about the 
the Second Amendment that says that, you know, a Second Amendment to have arms, well, we already took up arms in the Civil War. That was long after the Constitution was written. We did, and Washington wanted to overrule those southern states. They wanted to regulate, tax, regulate, and and that, so we've already done this. We've already run that uh, movie. So thank you for taking my call, Bob. Yeah, thank you for that. They're, they're desperate in, to do anything and everything they can to keep the people weak and at the mercy of their big daddy, which is government. And that means, yes, trying to undo the Second Amendment, ignoring their history. It is something that you know and I know will never happen. And I don't mean to be you know, dramatic or cliche when I say this. When people say they can take our guns when they prime from our cold, dead hands, I, I don't think it's just a meme. I don't think it's just a statement. I think people mean it. They will fight for their liberty, and as they should, which is why the Founding Fathers gave us the right to do so. I'll be right back. All right, hey friends, Bob France here for the good folks at Harry Buffalo and more. It's Bob here, Bob France here for you because I've got great news for you. This literally is for you because I've got five words that you're going to want to hear. Kids eat free on Thursdays. How about that? That's the special at Harry Buffalo on Great Northern Boulevard in North Olmstead from 4 to 7 during happy hour. Kids eat free on Thursdays. How about that? Stop in for a great meal. Check out the incredible incredible menu, uh, an assortment of mouth-watering options, whether you want a sandwich, whether you want a... Uh, whether you want uh, tenders or bowls or salads or tacos or pizzas or entrees, I'm telling you, the Burger Bonanza is phenomenal. Kids eat free on Thursdays from 4 to 7, so take the family out for an early dinner tonight. And, oh, by the way, if you're stopping out during happy hour as well, uh, $3 craft pints, domestic halls, well drinks, and house wines, all available for you. Do, do yourself a favor. Go on the website. Go to uh, harrybuffalo.com. Take a look at the menu. It will draw you to the place. It cannot help itself. It will draw you to the place. But also register when you're online as a subscriber, meaning you're joining the herd. When you join the herd, you get a free appetizer next time you go as well. Then you'll get all of the latest buff news and specials for the next time you want to head to Harry Buffalo. So whether you go during lunchtime or happy hour time or evening time at dinner time, it doesn't matter what time. It's always a great time when it's Harry Buffalo time on Great Northern Boulevard. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer.
Our number three is underway. Good morning once again. Eight minutes past 11 o'clock on this Thursday. The very first morning of the 12th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Good conversation earlier this morning with Dr. Everett Piper. If you missed it, you can hear it again after the show. It'll be uploaded to the podcast page at whkradio.com. If you're a new listener listening to me from somewhere around the country, uh, because you heard me yesterday filling in for Dennis Prager, welcome. And uh, you can find me here each and every day, uh, Monday through Friday from 9 until noon. So uh, I appreciate you coming on board. Uh, good conversations already, and another great one to come, I can tell, just by uh, what I know about the book. The book is called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. And it asks a really important question. What the hell does it matter? Literally, what does it matter to the government? Why do they care? Why do they make you check boxes on every form that you fill out, every application, every census? Why do they make you check a box saying you have to be white or black or Asian or Hispanic or something? What is the reason for the classifications? And I think there are some pretty good hypotheses for that for that uh, question but we're going to ask somebody who wrote the entire book about it david bernstein is the author of classified the untold story of racial classification in america he's a university professorship chair holds one at the antonin scalia law school at george mason university he's also been a visiting professor at the university of michigan georgetown william and mary brooklyn law school and the university of turin as well i'm going to forgive the university of michigan one uh uh uh, 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 uh dr bernstein because um or, or I should say Attorney Bernstein, because uh, we, we just took a thumping down there in Columbus last week. I, I'm sure you're probably aware of that. Yeah, well, they didn't offer me a job, so feel free to hate on them. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so let's, let's, let's get to the core of this. Um, I, I think a lot of people have been wondering just in general why we have to declare ourselves a member of a certain race other than for uh, division, uh, in my estimation, and perhaps for distribution of wealth because of oppressed, uh, uh, oppressed status or oppression status. But with a, in a world and in a country in which more and more groups are intermarrying, and it's not just black and white, but literally every ethnicity, Euro-ethnicities, African ethnicities, uh, Asian ethnicities, all, you know, intermingling and intermarrying and creating, you know, essentially, uh, you know, mixed-race individuals, why on earth do they care and why do they force us to identify ourselves with one race or another? So the classifications that we all check off or invented by the federal government or implemented by the federal government back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And primarily the reason was they just had a lot of statistics coming in for civil rights enforcement, for education, and they just wanted to have some uniform categories so they would be able to compare the data across agencies because every agency had its own definition of you know what Spanish-speaking people should be called or uh, which Asian group should be included. So they just wanted to make it uniform. And it was not a, real, a really controversial or considered important at the time, because they even said specifically in the rules it was not meant to provide uh, for eligibility for government programs. It's not meant to be scientific. It's not meant to be anthropological. So it's supposed to be just like a modest statistical uh, uniformity uh, provision. But, uh, you know, the way these things work, as soon as they did it, everyone said, oh, these are now the official statistics uh, categories. Let's use them for everything. Uh, and that everything has, it's not only the things we normally think about, like applying for school or registering your kid for school or, or filling out a mortgage application. It's even gotten to the point where they require biomedical companies to uh, 
to tabulate to recruit and tabulate their research subjects by race, even though these racial categories again are not scientific, they're not based on genetic commonalities. There's a group like Asians, you have Pakistanis who are Caucasian, you have uh, East Asians, you have uh, Filipinos who are mostly Austronesian. They don't even have a common general group, and then there's a lot of internal differences. So it's really, it's really. So the long and the short of it is, the government did something with you know good intentions without really thinking would amount to much, and interest groups organized around it, and uh, and, and uh, activists and, ideolo- and people with ideological bones to pick decided, yes, we should keep society in every sense segregated in this kind of way. Yeah, segregation is exactly the word I was looking for. We're talking with uh, Professor David Bernstein uh, about his new book, Classified, The Untold Story of Race, Racial Classification in America. So the government is okay, and apparently you know, agencies uh, that, that follow this, this lead with, as you said, Pakistani, Chinese, Filipino, they're all the same thing. They're Asian, even if they don't share any real commonality other than one particular region of the world. Um, if they're going to go out of their way to identify people by their ethnicities, why doesn't every Reform, say Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Filipino, etc., etc. Why do they do such a broad-based lumping of of individuals? So it really all goes back to the 1950s when the federal government first asked its contractors to fill out forms uh, declaring that they don't discriminate, and then they wanted to check to make sure they really weren't. So they said, "Please report to us which minority employees you have." They said definitely, you know, what they called Negroes at that time. Mm-hmm. And they left it up to the employers to, to report other groups. And the employers, the feedback they got from employers was like, well, look, uh, we know there's discrimination also against Catholics and Jews and Italians and all this, but we don't know who those people are, and we don't want to ask them. It's rude. It's potentially discriminatory. And some states even say we're not allowed to ask uh, about people's backgrounds. So the only ones who can really report to you are the ones that we can visibly see. So that's how we wound up with like visible minorities being the only ones that were checking. That's why we use those classifications. Well, we don't, we're not quite, you know, average white person maybe in the 1950s. We don't quite, we're not quite sure if you're, if you're Japanese or Chinese or Filipino, but you're Asian. So you can just, you just check that off. And that, and that sort of became, uh, you know, um, through a process of just inertia, uh, and the fact that there weren't that many Asians in the country at the time that anyone was really concer- concerned about, that just became what we wound up using. No one really sat down at any point, any point when we've been using these things and said, what would really make sense? Especially, what would make sense for the specific purpose? Because again, we use these crude, arbitrary, overbroad classifications for everything without thinking, does it match what we're trying to achieve? Like for diverse in higher education, which is a big controversy right now, it, you know, it, it, we talk about Asians being overrepresented, and therefore, we, you know, they, schools discriminate against them. But it's not really Asians who are overrepresented. Chinese, Indians, Koreans, Japanese are overrepresented. The other Asian subgroups are basically average or even below average in education. But we lose that subtlety by just putting them all to this broad classification. Well, even without the subtlety, even with the generality of just, you know, Asians, people from, again, that part of that region of the world or that continent, for crying out loud, um, the, the idea that they're going to be rejected, they're going to be turned away, discriminated against because of their success rate, because there are so many of them who are so dedicated to their studies and to their academics, and they, they qualify higher than anybody else, including whites, um, rejecting them on the basis of skin color. I mean, now we're getting to the to the core of this when we talk about affirmative action and the need for diversity and representation of what the community or the world looks like. Um, that's fundamentally unfair, and the government seems okay with that. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, really 
um, there's there's a certain ideology, and it's sort of associated with critical race theory, but it goes beyond that, that suggests that if any group is doing worse than average, regardless of what group it is, it must be because of institutional racism and discrimination. But this inherently leads to racism against groups that do better than average, right? Because if you say to say, if Mexican Americans are doing below average, it must be because of racism, but Chinese Americans or Indian Americans are doing above average, well, they must be cheating somehow. They must be taking unfair advantage, because everyone, every group should just be average. Now, the fact is, as the great economist Thomas Sowell has shown in his work, there's no multi-ethnic country in the entire world where you see the different groups lining up in exactly the same way in terms of how wealthy they are, in terms of how educationally uh, proficient they are, in terms of, of, uh, of wealth, income, any of those things. It just, that's just the way it is. Different groups have different, you know, have different levels of success, and while we could certainly say that African Americans who've been here for generations have had a particularly difficult legal and social situation, once you get beyond that, to sort of start sorting people, oh, well, Hispanics should be this and Asians should be that, we say, well, Hispanics should be this well represented. Well, why? Why do we assume that any given group should have to have any specific representation? And to talk about some group being overrepresented, you're right, it's completely unfair. The groups that are most successful, have the, whatever the attributes are allowed to succeed, we should be encouraging everyone to follow in their footsteps, not to penalize them for it. We are talking with uh, Professor David Bernstein. He is the author of a new book, and it's fascinating look, a really fascinating look at why the government and why our educational institutions and others must classify people by their race or their color or their ethnicity. The book is classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. I want to stay on Asians for just a second here, because I find it interesting, and I've spent a little bit of time on these airwaves talking to other folks about this, including Kenny Hsu. Um, you know, Asians are used uh, for whatever purpose they can be used by, uh, by individual groups, including institutions of higher learning. When there are too many of them, uh, who are on college campuses being very successful, well, they're like white people. They're not minorities. They're like the majority, and we have to limit that. But when they are, when they are victims of crimes, it's like, boy, look at that. Another, another, uh, example of the white race, uh, beating down on and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, discriminating against, uh, Asians, uh, and blaming them for things like the, uh, you know, the coronavirus. Um, Asians can be used, and Asians are used as one or the other. They're, they're part of the minority class when bad things happen to them, but they are part of the white class when they're achieving. Yeah, one of the really funny things I think in my book is I, cause I just noticed this when I was doing my research. Uh, the New York Times and Washington Post, other major media outlets, will often have these articles about, oh, Silicon Valley, you know, the high-tech companies in California. It's a white man's world. And they'll talk about that for several paragraphs. And finally, towards the end of the article, they'll, they'll note that like 30 or 40% of the employees are members of various Asian groups. Like, wait a second, I thought you just said they're all white and racist, uh, or at least you implied they're racist. Well, how did it turn out that 40% of their employees are Asian? So they just sort of, like you said, melded in uh, to the white category when it suits the narrative, and when it doesn't suit the narrative, they become, like you said, members of minority groups. Now, they are minority groups, but the key thing is, in the United States, we have lots of different minority groups, uh, what, you know, some of which are now considered whites, some which are Asian. But, you know, there's nothing uh, inherently special about which groups that we decide, you know, it's sort of arbitrary, which groups we classify as minorities. Hispanics uh, manage to sort of squeeze in, you know, they were personally considered to be white, but they manage to get considered to be the only ethnic group in the United States uh, that is 
subject to preferences. So it's really a really of a really strange situation. You could be someone whose ancestors came to New Mexico directly from Spain in the 17th century. You could be blonde hair and blue eyed, uh, and you could have mixed in with other people, German, Scandinavians, and you, because you have those Spanish-speaking ancestors, get affirmative action. And someone who comes from some impoverished third-world third country like Yemen uh, or Afghanistan is just considered white and doesn't get anything. Professor, I've got two more questions for you. The last one will be a loaded one. Uh, this one is going to be about going back to the um, um, the uh, academics and, uh, and, you know, Harvard and North Carolina and some of the others that are under fire right now and, in fact, being challenged legally for their discriminatory admissions practices. Can you talk about the impact on the black community when African-American students who aren't as qualified as perhaps their white or Asian counterparts all applying for admission into freshman classes, but they get brought in because of the affirmative action. They have lower test scores, lower standardized test scores, lower GPAs, uh, worse study habits and, and other things, but they're there because they want to diversify, they being the universities, to diversify the campuses. They go in there and they do work they simply quite uh, are, are not are not capable of doing. And I've had numbers given to me by Peter Kersenow from the Civil Rights Commission that show uh, the extraordinary number of African-Americans who go into these universities like Harvard who end up flunking out or barely scraping by with D's, when if they'd have gone to schools that were a little bit more at the level that they were prepared for, they could have gotten A's, had much higher class ranks, and had much better careers in front of them. But they're being used for the purposes of the window dressing, and it's harming blacks more than it is anybody else. Well, this isn't really dear and dear to my heart because I teach at a law school and the American Bar Association accredits law schools and they are very insistent that we take in enough minority students, they won't tell us what enough is, they just decide when, you know, from a completely arbitrary criteria when we have enough and it's um, uh, professor, Professor, we're breaking up badly. I'm getting about every third syllable. I can't quite hear you. I'm going to ask you to hold on for a second here. In fact, Marianne, put Professor Bernstein on hold for a second here. We'll take a time out. Let's reestablish that connection. We wanted to uh, take a time out here anyway, and we'll get his answer to that question. David Bernstein, author of Classified, the untold story of racial classification in America, and we'll continue with that right after this. Okay, 1125. Uh, we're hoping that the connection is a little bit better now as we continue with Professor David Bernstein, author of Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Professor, you were in the middle of what I think was a very great answer uh, before we started to get broken up there as, we ta- as we're talking about the impact of, uh, of um, African Americans being in schools they're perhaps not qualified for, but they're brought in because of diversification standards. You were saying that at your law school, uh, you're told we have to accept a certain number of minorities or a certain diversity quota, and if you want to pick it up from there. Sure. They don't tell us exactly how many, so we never know what will satisfy them. This is the ABA, which American Bar Association, which accredits us, and we have to be accredited or we can't function. And the fascinating thing and the disturbing thing about it is that they don't care how many of those students, how, how well those students do in school, how many of them graduate, 
and most important, how many of them ultimately pass the bar. Because there happens to be a very strong correlation between having low scores on the standardized test you need to get into law school, the LSAT, and not passing the bar. And we, if you tell the ABA, for, so for white students, the ABA says, we don't want you taking in any students who you don't think will pass the bar. For black students, they say, we don't care if they're going to pass the bar, we want you to take them anyway. Wow. So they try to force you to take students who are going to spend three years, you know, $100,000 or more, and maybe never become lawyers. And they just, and it's all for aesthetic reasons to show that they're doing something. So they're using, the they're using these black students. They're virtue signaling with their own, you know, for their own university, and they're using them. They don't care if they ruin their career prospects, don't care if they ruin their lives. They're never going to pass the bar because they're not able to based on their ability to handle that particular curricula at that particular university. They're using them and then somehow finding ways to say that we're looking out for minorities. That's exactly right. It's, uh, it's, it's really amazing. Last thing I wanted to ask you, and I said it would be a loaded question, it's because it's, it's literally what we're talking about in your book, Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. The two words that I think are um, very pervasive in this culture and lead to a lot of disagreements and sometimes beyond that are white privilege. Is there such a thing in America right now, based on all of the things you researched, as white privilege? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that members of minority groups who are visibly members of minority groups uh, face more discrimination in life uh, than uh, people who are white. But there are, you know, affirmative action programs on the other side. I mean, I think, but the, when it, when, you know, the, the I think what what the long and the short to me is, and I, you know, this is a little bit beyond my expert as a law professor. It's more of a sociology thing. Yeah. But from what I could tell from the data, whatever. You know, if we could look at things that we could look at objectively, not like how you feel about, you know, in society, but how well you do economically and so forth, um, whether you're white or not has a lot less to do. It's a lot smaller factor than a whole bunch of other things, including, of course, whether you grow up in a two-parent family, uh, whether you have internal you know, drive to overcome obstacles, uh, what neighborhoods, uh, you know, who your peer group is, whether your family encourages you. Even there are other things like being short or just not good-looking will have more of an effect on your economic and educational outcomes statistically than being a member of a minority group. So I wouldn't say that there's nothing to the concept, but I think it, to make that the be-all and the end-all of uh, everyone's uh, success or failure in life is both um, empirically inaccurate, but it's also damaging because I think a lot of young people walk around with an exaggerated view of how much being a member of an minority group hurts or being white helps, and they get discouraged and they don't uh, take advantage of the opportunities that are out there because they think that you know, the world's against them. The last thing I would say, just to follow up on that, um professor is you know you cover in your book um you know all of the a lot of the mixed races the fact that again different groups different ethnic groups are intermarrying and therefore having um, multiracial people children i don't know anybody who has a black parent and a white parent who identifies himself as white they don't check white on the box they don't check caucasian one would think if white privilege were such a thing they would say look i'm the white half that's what i am give me all of the privileges that come with it they all declare i'm black like barack obama did why would one choose the offended or oppressed group to be a part of if they have to pick one or the other well, look, it's a very interesting question because it actually gets more complicated than that. So one thing I mentioned in my book is that there are people who try to get the best of both worlds. 
they check the minority box when they're applying to colleges to get those advantages, but then they think it's totally advantageous to be seen as white, so and they look white, so they then uh, do not adopt that minority identity for social purposes uh, in the, in, when they actually matriculate. There are a lot of people who come in as Hispanic or Native American, but you would never know that once they're actually at the school. So that suggests that there's a balance, right? On the one hand, there are some official uh, advantages uh, to having minority status when you're, you know, for things like jobs and education. On the other hand, that socially, most people, a lot of people at least, uh, think it's, you know, they're better off being white. So, you know, um, how, where exactly that falls, uh, you know, overall, how you add those together, I don't know, but clearly you're right. The fact that there are so many people who are, look, there are a lot of people, there have been several professors in the United States who've been revealed to be faking minority status all this time. So whatever privilege they would have been getting from really being white, uh, they actually, so they obviously thought they'd get more benefit, at least in those particular careers, uh, from uh, feigning in a minority identity. So I think it's a, a, you know, so I wouldn't say there's no advantages in American society from being white, but I think there's times when it's more beneficial to be a minority, and it may, and overall, a lot of people may benefit more from that than from whatever alleged privileges they get from being white. Yeah, and you're not allowed to say that out loud, so I appreciate your honesty and your clarity on that. Doc, uh, professor, I keep wanting to say doctor, Professor David Bernstein, author of Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Pick that up and read it. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for the time, sir. Thanks for having me. My mom will be thrilled to call me a doctor. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's 1132. We'll take our news break here and come right back on Always Right Radio. So many people of the radical left always right radio with bob france on the answer you know it's so difficult sometimes to you know comprehend all of this stuff we're told by the left that we live in this phenomenally horrifically systemically racist and oppressive country And there's nothing that can be done about it because of white supremacy and because of white nationalism and white privilege. There will always be the oppressors and there will always be the victims. And the victims will always be the ones with the dark skin. Well, what happens when the skin isn't as dark? What happens when you have the mixed unions of multiple ethnicities, not just black and white, not just black and Hispanic, or white and Hispanic, or black and Asian, or white and Asian, or Hispanic and Asian, or, and, and by the way, Asian, meaning, as Dr. Or, I mean, as uh, Professor Bernstein just pointed out, <clears throat> does that mean Chinese? Does that mean Japanese? Does that mean Filipinos? Does that mean Indian? Does that mean Korean? Does that mean Vietnamese? I mean, on and on we go. You have all of these different you know, multiracial babies growing into multiracial adults. How do we keep separate and how do we quantify who's being victimized and who's being uh, oppressive? Who's doing the oppressing and who is being oppressed? Who deserves reparations and who has to pay them? This book that I was just talking to Professor Bernstein about kind of lays all that out, doesn't it? According to the left and their insistent insistence upon identity politics, that your classification 
as a member of a marginalized group is the most important thing about you. How smart are you? Doesn't matter what do you look like. How dumb are you? Doesn't matter what do you look like. How qualified are you? Doesn't matter who do you like to sleep with. How successful are you at standardized testing? It doesn't matter. Are you male or female or somewhere in between? What are your pronouns? Their insistence upon qualifying everybody in a in a in an identity group is what is leading, I think, ultimately to the destruction from within, the cracking of the beams uh, in this in this great republic. They want to classify everybody by something and then assign them their status. If you are lighter skin colored, it doesn't matter what your ancestry is. It doesn't matter if it's European, if it's South African, perhaps. It doesn't matter what your own personal ancestry is. It's how do you look? And once you decide that people who look light-skinned are the oppressors and people who look dark-skinned are the victims, and then you have all these people coming in with different shades because they're, they're intermarrying, which they should be, and they're procreating all kinds of multiracial human beings, which they should be, now you don't know what to do with it all. That's what this is about. What do you look like? Well, I look like a little bit of both. I've got a little bit of a darker tone to my skin, but i got straight hair. I've got a little bit lighter skin, but I've got uh, I've got more coarse hair. Well, you know, I've got um, an in-between color of skin, and I have certain facial features that identify me as something or another. Why does anybody give a rat's A what your ethnicity is? What can you bring to the table? This is the ultimate end of the discussion. When this conversation is had, even among, you know, the quote-unquote educated elites, even among the experts, this conversation comes to an end when we talk about meritocracy. What do you bring to the table? You want to go to school at Harvard? I don't care if you have any Asian features. I don't care if you have any African darker skin. I don't care if you have any lighter colored skin. I don't care if you speak Spanish and, and were raised in a Hispanic home. What do you bring to the table? Can you pass the classes? Can you achieve at a level high enough to bring glory to the university and bring success and prosperity to you? Putting kids in schools because they color up the campus, if they don't have the capability or the meritocracy or the merits, if you will, to succeed in that school is, is, is harming that kid. It's harming them. You think you're helping them, white liberals mostly, think they're helping. Look at this, we got more African Americans in the freshman class at Yale and Harvard and Cornell or whatever than ever before. Aren't we good? Look what we're doing for oppressed minorities. Well, what are you doing to them? What are you doing for them? If 75% of them are going to flunk out because they can't handle the classwork there because their test scores proved it and you didn't want to, you, you called them culturally biased, and their grades proved it and you said, yeah, but it's not fair because... They go to a poor school. You put them up there and they can't handle the work and they flunk out. What have you done for them? You have set them back years, potentially, if they try to go to a school they are qualified for after that, or the chances are they don't have the money to go to another school, so they end up dropping out. They got no degree. They got no prospects. They end up in service sector or whatever the case might be. And you feel good about yourself because you're a white liberal who said, look what I did. I brought more color to the campus. 
It's repugnant. It is repugnant to use people that way. African Americans primarily, but also Hispanics, and yes, Asians, as we talked about, many of the Asian community are used according to the narrative that is trying to be advanced at that moment in time. Meanwhile, you got half black and half white biracial people declaring they're black, never that they're white, despite what should be coming along with their declared whiteness, and that is privilege. Kind of makes you wonder. That book uh, is called Classified. Highly recommend that. Highly recommend you read the work from uh, Dr. Everett Piper as well. We talked about him. If you missed either one of those interviews, check them out. They'll be posted shortly at whkradio.com. Thanks so much for being a uh, part of the show today. Thanks to my crew. Tomorrow, it's free for all Friday. I'll see you then. Be well, be safe, stay free. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Let's go, Brandon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.